On this episode of Blue 58, the Packers made a big splash in free agency this week. Okay, maybe not a big splash. Maybe not a splash at all. Look, they re-signed Fidel Brown, and I think that's a good indicator of some things to come. I'll explain why, along with giving some examples of two other players they could, maybe should, pursue. Then, some outside-the-box thinking from a reader leads to this question. Could the Packers bring back Haha Clinton Dix? Hello and welcome to another episode of Blue 58. I am your host, John Meerdink. Happy to be with you here for one more episode. Well, one more in a long series of episodes. You get what I'm saying. Exciting stuff on the horizon. For the Packers, for all of us, free agency is just around the corner. And the Packers are doing some work getting their own house in order before they start to explore bringing some other folks in. Fidal Brown is the name of the day signing with the Packers after coming over on waivers late last season. He got a little bit of burn down the stretch and was relatively impressive as they did it. This is more than just a a tendering a guy like a restricted free agent offer. This is an honest to goodness, we've signed you for another year. This is good, I think. He's a solid tier two, maybe tier three type player on the Packers roster. You need those guys. And signing him now is good for a couple of reasons. First, I think he's an interesting player, and we'll get to that in a second. But it also gives the Packers a little bit of flexibility of their own here. ESPN's Rob Domovsky writes, quote, Packers defensive tackle, more on that in a second. Fidal Brown signed a one-year deal yesterday, while most of the other exclusive rights free agents will be tendered before free agencies. The difference is players who signed before the tender are subject to salary splits for injury. Brown is coming off a toe injury that actually dated to the preseason when he was in Oakland, so the Packers get some protection here. McCray's example, Justin McCray's salary, wouldn't be split if he goes on injured reserve, end quote. What is a split salary? Rob gets to it a little bit, doesn't give you the full explanation. Basically, a split salary means that a team can reduce a player's salary if he ends up on injured reserve. If, say, you sign for a million dollars a year, you'll get whatever one million divided by 16 is every week if you take your your pay that way. You have other options, but basically you're going to get one sixteenth of your salary every week that you're on the 53-man roster. If you go on injured reserve, your the salary that you're getting one sixteenth of reduces down to a split salary level, and it varies by the amount of time that you've been in the league. Getting Fidal Brown signed now gives the Packers a little bit of extra protection. He's betting on himself that if he stays healthy, he'll probably get a little bit more money than if he just took the exclusive rights tender. The Packers are protecting themselves by saying, yes, we're paying you more if you stay healthy, but if you don't stay healthy, we're going to be able to pay you a little bit less. I think it's interesting that Domovsky identifies him as a defensive tackle. That's not wrong per se, but it's not entirely right. And I think it speaks to the strength of who Fidal Brown is at a player. He is six feet, four inches tall, 282 pounds. So for just a pure defensive tackle, that'd be pretty small. But the Packers don't actually list him as a defensive tackle. They have him as a defensive lineman. He has the DL designation. They've started to do that a little bit more over the past couple of years. They've been really hesitant to give guys designations as ends or tackles. I'm not sure why they've got certainly some good thoughts behind it, some interesting reasoning behind it, but I think it it speaks to where the league as a whole is going. You don't really have tackles or ends anymore because nobody just lines up in the same position anymore. And Fidal Brown is kind of an extreme example of that. 
He's not just a defensive tackle. He's not just a defensive end. He's not just a hand-down edge rusher. He's not just a stand-up edge rusher. He can go a lot of different places and do a lot of different things, and he did a lot of those different things for the Packers last year. Think back to a guy like Mike Neal, one of the people who really started this trend for the Packers. He was drafted as a 300-pound defensive tackle out of Purdue, but by the end of his time in Green Bay, he was playing outside linebacker, a stand-up pass rusher. He could do a lot of different things because he was uh, built in such a way that he could add or lose weight, and he was athletic enough that he could play all over the defense. The Packers have been trending this way on offense and defense for a while. He's kind of what I call a position agnostic player. He doesn't have to get tied down to one specific designation. He's not just an outside linebacker. He's not just a defensive end. He's not even just an edge defender because he can rush from the inside too. That I think is a good thing for the Packers who have been doing this on the offensive side at guard and tackle for a long time too. In fact, that should come up this week as well because they've also re-signed Adam Penke to a two-year deal, adding another year to, to his contract. Um, he plays both guard and tackle, is listed as a guard and a tackle for the Packers on their roster as well. Versatility is important. And I think as this league tends to go towards the sub packages where you need uh, guys who can do different things, rush the passer, defend the run with uh, very few linebackers behind them, I think you're going to need more of these positionless, maybe position agnostic players. I think that's a good thing for the Packers to pursue this year in free agency, and that sets up what I'd like to talk about next. Fidal Brown is the cheap version of two guys I think could and maybe should be of interest to the Packers. Anthony Barr and the newly released by the Cleveland Browns, Jamie Collins. Both of them are in the 6'4", mid to upper 250s to low 260s range. Both very good athletes, Barr especially so, and both of them really don't have a super defined position. Are they edge rushers? Nah, not really. Are they pure off the ball linebackers? Not really that either. Are they def- uh, coverage linebackers? Probably not, but they do some of that too. Are they just run stopping inside linebackers? Nah, probably not, but they do some of that as well. They blitz up the middle. They're all over the place. And these are the sort of guys that I think could be of real interest to the Packers. Though they may cost a little bit more, Barr in particular here, I think you're getting a good value. And being able to provide a lot of value is, is one way, or being able to get a lot of value is one way to maximize the money that you're spending in free agency. Think of that, think of just the versatility argument and try to apply it to some of the free agent signings that haven't worked out for the Packers in the past. I'd like to see his entire contract run its length before we decide that this was a bad idea, but Jimmy Graham is a recent example. Jimmy Graham is a lot of things. He's been successful in the NFL for a pretty long time, but I think you'd be hard-pressed to call Jimmy Graham particularly versatile. He pretty much does one thing, and he does it really, really well. He's really big and athletic. Is that a skill set? I don't know. He uses his big athleticism to ju- essentially just be a giant slot receiver, not even really a slot receiver, a tight end who splits out. And he ends up lining up in the slot. You know what I mean. He does that one thing, and he did it really well for a long time. He didn't do it super well in Green Bay last year, but 
there's a chance you could do it better again in 2019. The point is, signing a guy who does one thing really, really well, you're kind of boxing yourself in. If he stops being able to do that thing at a super high level, suddenly paying a premium to get that super high level talent looks stupid. And the Packers, if things don't go well with Jimmy Graham here next year, could be on the borderline and probably into well into the territory of looking stupid. Signing these guys who can do more than one thing could be a way around that. And both of these guys are good enough athletes or were good enough athletes in the past that there's a safe bet, I think, that they could continue to be that versatile in the future. Barr, in particular, is a freaky type of athlete. His pro day for UCLA is kind of legendary. 6'5", 255 at weigh-in, ran a 4-4-1 in the 40-yard dash and cleared 10 feet in the broad jump. Explosive athlete, right? And he has played that way in the NFL. But that cuts both ways because you start setting some certain expectations for what a guy should be able to do when he has that kind of athleticism. And that brings us to the red flags with Anthony Barr. Let's talk about the red flags before we sign or talk about the particular pros of signing him. Anthony Barr is built like an edge rusher, but he doesn't really play like one. Some of that is him. Some of that is the scheme that he played in in Minnesota. The point is he's, is he's not doing it. Andy Herman of CheeseheadTV.com took a look at all that Anthony Barr did as a pass rusher, particularly his sacks, and came up with some very un-edge rusher-like numbers. First and foremost, in four years in the NFL, Anthony Barr has only had 13 and a half sacks. Five years, in, excuse me. Uh, there, These came on 14 different plays, Andy writes. And then just the breakdown. Ten of the sacks either came in untouched or unblocked. Two of those sacks, he worked one-on-one with a running back. One sacked, he was blocked, but Philip Rivers ran into the sack, essentially. And then one sack, it was a A-gap blitz, and the center and guard couldn't get figured out who was supposed to block who, and Anthony Barr essentially has another unblocked path to the quarterback. This is concerning, because if you're signing a guy to rush the passer, you would hope that he would be winning one-on-one matchups fairly regularly. That's something that we've seen as a significant criticism for both Clay Matthews and Nick Perry over the past couple of years. Neither of them seem to be able to win one-on-one. And if you're getting paid like a high-end pass rusher, you'd think that you'd be able to do that. The flip side of that is that scheming pressure is part of a successful pass rusher. And Mike Pettin showed last year that he is very capable of scheming guys into sacks. You need no look no further than Blake Martinez winding up with five sacks on the year. Nobody would confuse him for a authoritative pass rusher of any kind. But there you have it. He got to the quarterback. And he brought the quarterback down when he got there. Peter Bukowski expands on this concept for Acme Packing Company. Quote, even if every one of those sacks, the 14, 13 and a half that he had, had to be schemed up, I don't think any Packers fan would think twice about it being a win. The question will be price. But even if all Barr can be is a versatile linebacker who can cover, make some plays in the run game, and maximize his blitz opportunities, that's a $10 million-plus player in the NFL today. Given that floor of impact, it makes much more sense to pay him in that $12 million to $14 million range to be a jack-of-all-trades Sam linebacker than to fork over the $14 to $16 million it may take to get Preston or Zadarius 
Smith, end quote. I think that's a good argument there, particularly the financials at the end. Sure, you may not be paying Anthony Barr to be an edge rusher, but that means you can pay him a little bit less. And if you get a guy who's good at a bunch of things and can pay him to be pretty good to great at a bunch of things, you can still justify paying him quite a bit and you don't have to worry about falling into that doing one thing trap and having that guy stop being able to do that one thing. Paying 14 to $16 million and have it turn out to be a bad idea is, is worse, obviously, than paying 12 to 14 and having it work out pretty okay, especially if he can do a variety of things. In short, the Packers, I think, should look for versatility in the free agent market, whether that's Anthony Barr or Jamie Collins or wherever. Look for guys who can do more than one thing. That's where your real value is going to come. Failing that, look for guys that look like they're going to be able to sustain what they're doing for a while. Maybe that's Kevin Zeitler, who people have talked about as a potential trade target for the Packers here this week, now that it seems like the Browns may be willing to move on from him. Just a couple thoughts there on free agents. And I should add this caveat. I'm not making this argument by saying the Packers should sign either of these guys. I just think if you're looking for versatility, Barr and Collins are two guys who are versatile and may be able to help the Packers there. Sound good? Good. I'm sure we'll have plenty of free agent stuff to talk about in just over a week when the actual free agency money is flying around. Interesting times are upon us. Moving along, an interesting question from a listener. Since the Packers are going to have some money to spend in free agency and they need a safety, David, a listener, connects the dots. Here's his question via Facebook. An interesting idea I had while scrolling through the Packers' rumor Twitter sphere was many people believe the Packers should bring back HaHa Clinton Dix. Full disclosure, I was a big fan, so I'm biased in wanting it, but also don't think it will happen. But I imagine a scenario where the Packers bring him back cheap with a high-end safety, and HaHa may be able to shine like he did when he had help from the likes of Morgan Burnett and Micah Hyde. Once again, I am 100% biased, but I'd love to hear how you think this plays out. Imagine how genius Gutekunst would look getting a pick for a guy he was once able to then bring back for cheaper. Once again, a long shot. A few interesting points there by David. First, HaHa Clinton Dix would certainly probably be cheap. And that's one of the big arguments in his favor. Just on paper, being able to sign a guy who can competently play safety, something the Packers struggled with last year, to a relatively cheap contract would be a win. And there was evidence last year that HaHa Clinton Dix, I think, was playing better. Maybe not great, but better. He's certainly familiar with your scheme, and he seems like a pretty decent guy off the field. Does a lot of work with charity, a lot of very good work with charity as well, and just seems to be aware of the great privilege and blessing that he has in being a professional athlete. That's pretty cool and probably more rare than it should be. So on paper, uh, there's a case to be made, maybe a bit of a coin flip. And if the Packers manage to sign another safety who could do some of the things that Clinton Dix can't, play close to the line, play hard, play hard against the run, maybe he can do some of the things that he's more comfortable with. There are the questions about range and stuff like that and Those will still be there, but maybe it's not impossible. But as David points out, there are some flies in the ointment here too. 
it's the additional stuff though. It's not the the stuff that you think about with a player. I mean, whether or not he could play, because we know all that. The Packers know it better than most. The Redskins know it pretty well too now, but the Packers have a pretty good idea who HaHa Clinton Dix is as a player. So that makes you wonder why the Packers were willing to give up on him at all. It's one thing to know that you're not going to re-sign a guy after the season, but why give him up mid-season? Yeah, fourth-round uh, fourth pick is great, but still, the Packers needed a lot of help in the back end of their defense. He wasn't playing terrible. And suddenly, in the middle of the season, a season you're still very much in at the point when they traded him, they decided to weaken their team in the short term. That makes you wonder a little bit, doesn't it? I would think so. And then you wonder about some of the stuff, the soft stuff, the, the soft skills in the locker room, things like that. He talked a lot about accountability and effort and things like that. Well, accountability and effort weren't really big, strong points for HaHa Clinton Dix either. He made a lot of mistakes, but uh, I think you could say charitably he struggled to own up to them. And when you talk about effort, well, rewind the tape to the end of the 2017 season in that Detroit game. Boy, there are some red flags about effort there, too, from one Mr. Clinton Dix. Then you've got your questions about basic execution. It seemed like week in, week out, it was you saw HaHa Clinton Dix taking a bad angle on a ball carrier or a pass and it hurting the Packers. That's a, a significant red flag. And I think you can be a fan of HaHa ha Clinton Dix while also acknowledging there are some problems there. So the bottom line, as David rightly points out, this is probably a long shot. Probably the longest of long shots. But maybe it can be an archetype for what the Packers do in free agency. Maybe they get that playmaker type, maybe a Landon Collins who plays down near the line of scrimmage and does the things they've been trying to get Josh Jones to do while bringing in a lower-priced guy who can handle the deep coverage responsibilities. I think that's a pretty straightforward way of approaching things. That could be any combination of things, too. You could get you could sign a free agent who does the, the box safety type stuff and draft a guy who plays deep, or vice versa. You never know. There's a lot of options there, and maybe if the Packers don't sign Clinton Dix, and they won't, probably... The approach David lays out can still be kind of a roadmap. I don't know. Could be worth thinking about. While I've got you here, there was a cool scene at Lambeau Field today. John Kuhn came back to the Packers and retired as a member of the organization. I think there are some mixed feelings out there on Packers Internet about John Kuhn. Off the Internet at Lambeau Field, I think everybody loves him. On the field, or on, you know, among our kind of people, you know what I mean. You, the listener, me, the guy talking into the microphone. There is some, I think, nudge, nudge, wink, wink type stuff about John Kuhn. Yeah, the fans love him, but here's McCarthy running an inefficient play again. Is that actually true, though? Is giving John Kuhn the ball, as Mike McCarthy was wont to do, really such a bad idea? And if it is a, a good idea, why were so many people against it? Well, a couple things. Did some research on this today. Where are the stereotypical football fullback situations? Third and fourth down and short, probably. That's where you think about a fullback running the ball. 
John Kuhn, in his time in Green Bay, ran the ball 40 times on third and fourth down and three yards to go or less. So third and three or fourth and three or less, John Kuhn ran the ball 40 times in his Green Bay career. And he converted a lot of first downs. In fact, 70% of the time that John Kuhn touched the ball in those situations, the Packers got a first down, which is pretty incredible. How incredible, you ask? I have the numbers. League-wide, the conversion rate on the same down and distance was just 65.8%. John Kuhn actually gave the Packers an edge in those situations over the league average. There is the statistical value of grit. But if he's doing it so well, why did so many people hate it so often? First, people tend to overplay the negative a little bit. But secondly, in the playoffs, it was a lot worse. He didn't get the ball a lot in the playoffs, but when he did, bad things tended to happen. Same down and distance for the Packers in John Kuhn's playoff career. He ran the ball six times on third and three or less or fourth and three or less and converted for first downs just twice. On two of those other four runs, he fumbled. John Kuhn did not deliver on the stereotypical fullback plays, you know, catches and stuff notwithstanding, in the playoffs. And I think that probably left a little bit of a bad taste, maybe a disproportionately bad taste in people's mouth. Still, though, he seems like a good guy, a smart guy, has a beautiful family. He has cute pictures of his daughter from the uh, the induction ceremony today. Cool to see. Likes being in Green Bay. Pretty much just a consummate professional. And he was fun to have around in Green Bay. Even if you were a cynic about John Kuhn, you have to admit that he was successful sometimes too. He was a great pass blocker. He always knew where he was supposed to be. And even if he took some stuff off the table for you, he brought quite a bit of it to the table as well. Cool guy to have around and cool to see him brought back in this manner as well. That's all I've got for you in this episode. Thanks so much for tuning in. You can find us as you always do on thepowersweep.com and on Facebook and on Twitter and via email by typing thepowersweep1959 at gmail.com into the email program of your choice. Support us as you have been so kind to do and hopefully will continue to do uh, via a couple different ways. Patreon.com slash thepowersweep is one of the easiest. Uh, $1 per month helps offset some of our hosting costs. Another way to do that is to support us on Teespring. Buy one of our fine t-shirts or sweatshirts by clicking the shop link at thepowersweep.com. And you can always leave us a review on iTunes if you want. It helps more people find the show, and we do love to get your feedback that way. We do love to hear from you, whatever avenue you choose. Any feedback you give us helps us all get better. It helps us make this entire operation better, the website, the podcast, everything. And ultimately, it helps us all become smarter Packers fans. And as I always say, smarter Packers fans are better Packers fans, and better Packers fans are what we all want to be. I'm your host, John Meerdink. We'll see you next time on Blue 58.